One of the first things that comes to my mind when I'm reading scripture, as long as you read the stories, I'm just listening to it. It's, you can't make this stuff up. Like, if you wanted to, it's like, how does that happen? How does God put those things together? And for me, as we've been reading through the book of Daniel, the second thing that has been coming up to my mind was this, God, why didn't you stop at chapter 6? Because, I mean, most, okay, this is what I noticed. You know, when we're doing through commentaries, you listen to other churches that go through the series that go through the book of Daniel, they always stop after chapter 6. You know, Daniel goes through the lion's den, next, next series, going, we go on. But, oh, no, here at the crossing, we're going to the end, okay? And, but I was wondering, it's like, but it's okay, because, and like, I even asked Josh, like, are you sure we're going to the end of Daniel? He's like, oh, no, we're going through it. I'm like, oh, okay. It's all apocalyptic scripture, all about the end times. I'm like, and it's a challenge. It really is, especially for me, but it's okay. I'm trying to learn and understand because the passages that we're going to be going through from chapter 7 all the way to the end of Daniel plus the book of Revelation is what I've realized is the most misinterpreted passages that we have here in America. And I say America, it's because as I've learned about more about talking about these, these passages, these chapters in, from Daniel in, in, in a prophecy, I feel like it's really only here in American theology that we, they seem to be putting, like take these bits and pieces of what we hear when we read about in the text and try to match it up to what is part of current events in history and try to piece together what is going to happen in the end. They try to, to pre- make predictions of the end times. And, but as I've read, read over and over, and at least in the last decades, of hearing other scholars talking about these, these passages, like they talk about this army coming from the east, and everybody says it's always China. And, you know, okay, I have, I have no ties to China, by the way. My, I have no family, no relatives who ever lived there. I have no, nothing about China. My dad has never even stepped foot on that soil. But as an Asian American, I find it a little bit offensive, okay? <laughs> so like, every time it's like, hey, this army from the east, it's China. And then every time they look, talk about the Antichrist, it's just whoever's the sitting president of the United States is. Right now, the Antichrist is Joe Biden. But four years ago, it was Donald Trump. And before that, it was Barack Obama. And so, I mean, it just keeps going. Like, I don't think you're right. <laughs> and so i realizing that now, I'm not a Bible. Bible scholar by any means. I don't have a PhD in Old Testament or New Testament, but I'm trying to wonder as I'm reading into these passages, if somebody were to read this for the first time without any influence from the media, is this what they would come up? Would they be coming up with the same conclusions that we've read about or what people are talking about? Who do they think this army in the East is? Or who do they think the Antichrist is? I don't think so. And where I believe they have it wrong, and this is in all humility, <laughs> it's better to not know when the last day is and to not know those details, try to piece them all together. And wait a minute, Dale, isn't the return of Christ imminent? Yes, it says that in the Bible. Christ can be coming back any time, and we are supposed to get ourselves ready for when he is going to come, but I think our definitions of what it means to get ready is a little bit different. Whereas they're ready, it's like, okay, we're trying to figure out, okay, if that, the horns, that, that means X, that means Y. Rather, I, I, I'm pretty sure when Jesus is telling us to get ready, it wasn't to try to piece together these puzzles together, but it's to get ready, but leaving our lives to tell the gospel to our neighbors. Because at any time, if he can come back, we need to let people know, hey, he's coming back. 
And you need to have, and he wants this relationship with you. And that's what it means when we read prophecy to see God's greater picture, that he wants people to come to this relationship with him. Because prophecy was not meant for us to zoom in and look at all these little details and try to figure out what's going on. But I almost feel, if we're reading it, what if we started to zoom out? Zoom out in light of what we are reading in the passages, how does it work together in God's grander, greater plan of everything that is going on? It's like a lot of times I feel like with all the issues that we have in our lives, maybe injustice, the hurts, the pains, rumors of layoffs, and we kind of zoom in. Like, you know, in our phones, we kind of pinch in, look a little closer, and we can get so stuck in those little details, but God, it's challenging us to, what if we zoomed out? and see how what we are dealing with is in light of the greater picture of what's going on. And we're trying to, when we see the greater picture, is when we're starting to be able to realize, hey, God, he's got this. He's been in control this entire time. And so where have we gone wrong in the interpreting of reading of Scripture is first by the misunderstanding of the word, where I believe, apocalypse. Because see, when we read the Bible, as we've been going through different parts, when it has things that are very literal, we take it literally. There are parts where it says, this is figurative. So we take it figuratively. But when it comes to the apocalypse, we, we Google it. No, uh, we, we don't know what to do. And so if we started off with an incorrect definition of what the apocalypse is, it's going to lead to an incorrect implication of what it means. And so for me, the word apocalypse has always meant, I don't know why, maybe it's because the influence is when all hell breaks loose is utter total destruction. Now, if that was in my mind as I read and approach the text, what I'm going to come from from that, oh, this is going to be utter and total destruction, it skews the way I read it. But the very definition of the word apocalypse was nowhere near what I thought it was. It simply means a revelation to uncover or disclose in the context of the Bible God's uncovering of what will occur in the end. So if we take the very definition of what apocalypse is as we approach an apocalyptic text, it helps us understand that this is an unveiling of just the end rather than having this understanding of it. It's utter total destruction as I read into the text. There's a quote about how to interpret prophecy. It comes from someone a lot far more brilliant than I am. He is, yeah, she has his PhD. And this is how, this is how we approach apocalyptic texts. Reading apocalyptic then is best done from a distance. Like ancient hearers, hearers, we need to take in the sweep of the narrative. Apocalyptic uses allusions and symbols that may be peculiar but in the larger context combined to depict scenes of unusual vividness and emotions. But the message can be easily missed if strokes of the painter's brush are scrutinized individually. And the truth comes through vividly when we view it from a distance. Where are we gonna go from Daniel chapter seven all the way to the end is in apocalyptic form. And we'd have that as the background of what, as we read the text. It's not like where the first, first six chapters where things were literal. Daniel's friends, they were thrown into a literal furnace. That was real. The writing on the wall, 
was literal. Kind of eerie the longer we think about that one, okay? <laughs> but it, Daniel was thrown into a den with literal lions. Those were actual. They were real. But as we go on from chapter 7, moving on forward, things become apocalyptic. These are supposed to try to piece, and we see it from a distance, how they come together for this bigger picture for us to know. Because comfort is knowing that God is in control. And he doesn't, want to, he doesn't give us all the details or we wouldn't trust him. Because as, as God's revealing these things to Daniel and his friends, like, okay, these are the things that are just are going to happen in the history in the coming years, the coming centuries. They're not supposed to sit down like, oh, who is this gonna kingdom that's going to come? I mean, is it China? I mean, I don't know. Who's this coming from the east? They weren't there to try to figure those things out. But as we go into this chapter, it's like chapter 7, if we had noticed from last week, it was kind of weird. <laughs> Hybrid animals, like, what's going on here? And the best here, chapter 8, when we get into it, it gets a little less weird. But God gave the details, because, hey, if God were to give you the details of your life where you were, I really believe that we wouldn't follow him. I mean, just think back. And for me, I, I really thought back like about 25, 26 years ago, before I became a Christian. If God told Daniel, one day in 25, 26 years ago, I'm going to give details of what's going to happen. You're going to be a pastor in the East Bay. I said, no way. Be, I mean, if he had told me that it, like, so clearly, I wouldn't want to follow that, to go through the struggles that he told me that I would have to go through. And so if he were to tell us exactly what was going to happen, most of us would not follow, which is why he doesn't do that. But he tells us of the general picture, zooming out. Because our future is best viewed from a distance because the future is far. It is distant. And that's how we just view it. Literally, because when we see how when we pull back, God is in control. He's got this. And he gets glory when we just be able to rest and have comfort in that. Now, the context as we're getting back into chapter 8 is that it is referring a lot back to chapter 2 when it talked about the statue that, uh, from, that had the gold to, in, from Nebuchadnezzar's dream to the silver, torse, silver top to the bronze and then to the clay and the iron and the clay. Now, we're referencing, we'll be talking more about the second and the third, like the silver and to the bronze, zooming into just those folks, those parts, just for a moment to let them know what's going to happen in the coming centuries to show that God is still in control. So, whether you have your Bibles, you'll be on the screens as well. We're looking at Daniel chapter 8. Remember, apocalyptic literature, not as literal. Let's see what's going on. And see, as he continues to show Daniel and his friends what is going on. In Daniel chapter 8, just start in verse 1. It says, In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, after that which appeared to me at the first. So this is here, we have our keywords. It's a vision, it is not a dream. A little different from what happened two years ago in chapter 7 when he was actually asleep, had, had the dream of what was going to happen. But this is Belshazzar now. This is in between the reign. This is the same guy, the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar, not Nebuchadnezzar, himself. He was the one that paraded, that would later on parade the temple artifacts all around just to celebrate in his little grand party. And he was the one that experienced the writing of the wall. So this is the context of when he received this vision. In verse 2 to 4, it says, And I saw in the vision, 
And when I saw, I was in Susa, the citadel, which is in the province of Elam. And I saw in the vision, and I was at the Olai Canal. I raised my eyes and saw, and behold, a ram standing on the bank of the canal had two horns, and both horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. I, I saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward. No beast could stand before him, and there was no one who could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased and became great. So in this vision, what's unique between this vision versus the dream that he had two, two chapters ago, or two, was that he's awake. So Daniel is here. He's, he's standing in Susa, which is... Standing in Susa, he's overlooking this, this canal, and he's just kind of watching, and all of a sudden, in the scenery, like, there's a ram that just kind of appears in some sort of vivid, figuratively. Not, no, this is not a literal lamb, or ram. And it just, he just sees it kind of appear, and he's watching it unfold before his eyes. Now, he's in Susa because it's in the east, because we notice, where does this ram not come from? It, it goes towards, it goes north, south, and to the west. This ram is going to the, from the east. During this time in history, what had happened was, as they were in the kingdom of Babylon with Belshazzar, the Medes and the Persians, was two smaller countries that were east of where Babylon was, and they were starting to strength, and they made an, had made an alliance together. These two smaller countries came together and said, okay, we're going to be together one big power. So what most likely happened during this time was Belshazzar is sending Daniel, hey, can you go east? Can you talk to them? He's getting a little scared because this greater power is rising up. So Daniel, being the title, he's going to go towards eastward. He's, go, and he's going to, to here, and he sees this vision of this ram, these two horns, which we will learn represents the Medes and the Persians. What's so unique about these two horns is that we notice here, one is higher than the others. Because even as we're talking in Scripture here, we talk about the Medes and the Persians. But in a, just another chapter later, we notice we only mentioned the Persians. Because the Persians were the greater of the two horns. Eventually, the Persians would overtake and become their own singular power over during this time from this east. So he sees this ram. Nothing, this unstoppable ram that's going everywhere, running around this canal in, the, in this vision. And the next part of the vision, he's trying to figure out, what is going on? In verse 5, so as I was considering, behold, a male goat came from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground. And the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. He came to the ram with the two horns, which I had seen standing on the back bank of a canal, and he ran at him in his powerful wrath. I saw him come close to the ram, and he was enraged against him and struck the ram and broke his two horns. And the ram had no power to stand before him, but he cast him down to the ground and trampled on him. And there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. Then the goat became exceedingly great. But when he was strong, the great horn was broken. And instead of that, it, there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heavens. As he was thinking about, what did I just see in this canal? A ram that is unstoppable. And all of a sudden, a goat comes out of nowhere. Again, not literal, figurative. 
But what's unique about this goat, maybe you've noticed this about this goat, goats usually have two horns, not one. So it's very conspicuous. Why does this goat only have one horn? But all of a sudden, this gravity-defying goat seems <laughs> rushing across canal in his, his vision, and we learn with this great speed, with the, not even touching the floor. This was, a, we see in history, is talking about, and he didn't know it at the time, is Alexander the Great, who came from the west, conquering over to the east. It came with such speed, it seemed like his chariots, his horses, were not even touching the ground. And over at the end, during Alexander the Great's reign, his power, he died a young death due to his pride, and four great powers came out of this, which we see his one broken horn broken into four, and consolidated the power to these four to continue to rule. But within these four, it even predicts one of these has a significant part in history. Because in verse 9, it continues going. So which one of the, from one of these four powers, it shares about this next person called Antiochus. One of, out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. It grew great even to the host of heaven, and some of the hosts and some of the stars it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. It became great, even as great as the prince of the host, and the regular burnt offering was taken away from him. And the place of his sanctuary was overthrown, and a host will be given over to it together with the regular burnt offering because of transgression, and it will throw truth to the ground, and it will act and prosper. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to the one who spoke, For how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering, the transgression that makes it desolate, and the giving of the sanctuary and host to be trampled underfoot? And he said to me, for 2,300 evenings and mornings. Then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. This is talking about another person in history called Antiochus. Now, this was not in the statue that we read earlier in chapter 2 of the gold, silver, and to the bronze, but it's a little bit in between. It's talking about a ruler, one of the four horns, one of the greater ones, was in the Seleucid power, the king, it, he, he just grows to power really quick in this kingdom and grew a lot of power, while at the same time he would persecute and put down the Hebrew nation for a, and stop the worship in the temple for about 2,300 days. And what we've learned in history, of course, in hindsight, what had happened was after he had lost the battle towards the West, trying to control his land, he took it, his anger out on the Jews as he went towards the East. And when he went to Jerusalem, he went there and he slaughtered just Jews. So in 168 BC, he desecrated the temple. He, he sacrificed, he, he kicked the Jews out of the temple, he desecrated, he sacrificed a pig on the altar, which is very unholy for the Jewish people, and just threw the place blood everywhere. It just, just made it gross and dirty. Put up idols in, place, in God's temple. At and he would not allow the Jews to do the normal sacrifices that would have to do every day to keep the temple running. 
But after about four years, a guy named by the Judas Maccabeus, not Iscariot, Maccabeus, he led the Jews into a revolt to fight and push them out of power. And they got the temple back and be able to rededicate the temple back to God. But when they were rededicating the temple to God, cleaning things up, getting the blood off the walls, and they realized, okay, we got to light the candles again um, to as part of the, their way to they worship God. But when they were lighting the candles in, in the temple, they realized we only have enough oil for a day. And it would take them eight days before they would have be able to, light, um, be able to get more oil ready to be able to light the candles. So they, what they did was that, okay, we're going to pray that God, that you would extend this oil for eight days. And miraculously, It did. The oil that was supposed to last for a day lasted for eight days, which is pretty impressive. I even think back a few weeks ago, we were trying to light our candles for Advent. We couldn't even keep them on for eight minutes. Eight days. And this is where the foundation of the Jewish Hanukkah comes from. That's why they celebrate. Because for eight days, God extended this oil miraculously. And that's where it came. So this is where all of that comes from in this passage from 9 to 14. It talks about what, this future Hanukkah that they did not even know that would even exist. Now for Daniel, he's looking at us, wait, what does this all mean? Because remember, from his context, he's sitting in Susa. He's seeing this. Wait, a temple is going to be desecrated? But remember, he's in Babylon. He's in exile. The temple has not been rebuilt yet. So he sees here, it's like, future wait, so the temple is going to be rebuilt because it's going to get desecrated. And it's talking about another future desecration that I'm not going to try to predict of what's going to be, be or going to happen. So, but what does this mean to us? What does it mean to him? In verse 15, he continues with interpretation. When I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. And behold, there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Uli, and it called Gabriel. Make this man understand the vision. The interpreter needed an interpretation. He was the guy that Nebuchadnezzar had gone to. Hey, what do these dreams mean? And Daniel didn't know. So he needed help. So God sent him Gabriel, one of the archangels, Michael being the other archangel. Help explain this. Help him understand what is going on. So then he explains. So this is his reaction in verse 17. So he came near where I stood, and when he came, I was frightened, and I fell on my face. But he said to me, understand, O son of man, that the vision is for the time of the end. Verse 18, and when he had spoken to me, I fell into a deep sleep with my face to the ground. But he touched me and made me stand up. His reaction was like, this, when this angel just started talking to me, he fell to the ground in fear. And so much so that he just trembled. And he was so fearful, he got knocked out. Like he just fell into say, a deep sleep, which is in the Hebrew, talks about a coma-like state. So much that he was just frightened that the angel had to go, hey, wake up. <laughs> touched him up. And he had to wake him up. Didn't you want to know what this interpretation meant? I'm going to explain it to you. 19 to 22. Verses. He said, okay, this is interpretation. Behold, I will make known to you what shall be at the latter end of the indignation, for it refers to the appointed time of the end. 
after the ram that you saw with the two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia. And the goat is the king of Greece. And the great horn between his eyes is the first king. As for the horn that was broken in place of which four others arose, four kingdoms shall arise from his nation, but not with his power. These are the ones that are going to happen next. So, oh, this is why I'm going here to talk to the Medes and the Persians. But he's not going to live to see, though, the, Greece, the king of Greece, or would he ever live to see Antiochus 400 years later? Because, but then in Antiochus, verse 23, it speaks of him. And at the latter end of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their limit, a king of bold face, one who understands riddles, shall arise. His powers shall be great, but not by his own power, and he shall cause fearful destruction and shall succeed in what he does and destroy mighty men and the people who are his saints. By his cunning, he shall make deceit prosper under his hand and his own mind. He shall become great. Without warning, he shall destroy many, and he shall even rise up against the prince of peace, princes, and he shall be broken, but by no human hand. 400 years later, from this time of receding this, Antiochus was this great leader. Everybody, a lot of people liked him, but he snaps and commits genocide towards the Hebrew people. So what do we learn from prophecy? There are three purposes in prophecy, and it's just for us to remember when we read into the text. The first Look at the three pieces of prophecy, the purposes. The first is that God could be using this to prosecute when he tells us a prophecy. Injustice that happens, and even for Antiochus, the Babylons, the Persians, the Greeks, the injustice that happens, well, God will persecute it. Secondly, when we hear prophecy, it's God persuading us. If you do not follow his laws, if you do not follow back to his teachings, you will face judgment. So, He's persuading, can you return to this relationship back that God has created us to be with him? But thirdly, prophecy is for us to predict. Because if you do follow his commands, yes, the blessings will come forth towards you. And, or he will predict that there will be judgment because of your not wanting to hear and follow what he has to say. Because God here is prosecuting the injustice that's going to be happening to the Jewish people. Remember that all the injustice that happened to them while they were in exile, it'll be, they will be judged. While persuading the people to return to the Lord, he will bring you home, which is why they've been praying that one day we'll be going home. And he predicts that when you do follow, yes, you will be blessed. But when they do not follow, your temple will be desecrated. So of all this that Daniel has, what does he do? What God tells him to do? In verse 26, the vision of the evenings and the mornings that has been told is true, but seal up the vision, for it refers to many days from now. Now, the seal up is not to say, okay, you can put it up and hide it from people. No, it's seal it up because you got to share this with other people. Write this down. Because one of the people, folks, centuries later, are going to read it and know what is going to happen. So they have to be comforted by how much God is in control. But of all the details that Daniel has been given in verse 27 at the end of this chapter, it says, And I, Daniel, 
was overcome and lay sick for some days. Then I arose and went about the king's business, but I was appalled by the vision and did not understand it. He all, because with so much, it just got him sick to the stomach to hear that what, one day, God, you can build up a temple, but then it's going to get desecrated in front of all of our eyes. But yet, he still had to get up and do his job. You're still going to talk to the Medes and the Persians. You know what's going to happen after that, too. And that was his role. He just continued to live life, but he was able to zoom out for a moment to see the grander picture of why God is giving this prophecy, these details for him to follow. And we got to remember, Daniel, when he's looking at it's going towards the future. He doesn't know the hindsight 2020 that you and I, because we're viewing it from it's in the past. And God doesn't give Daniel any more details or even more days, but, but he just zooms out and says, okay, I'm just going to sit and wait and hope, continue to pray. God, would your will be done? Because he can't make up any of this stuff. God, the way he orchestrates and puts the pieces all together, it's... That's so much better. And what we can learn in reading of prophecy is how, what about if you and I were able to zoom out a lens of our perspective of life rather than maybe so zoomed into all the details that we have that's going on in our lives. I know we're in another election year. I don't know why. Maybe I'm just old enough now. Every time there's an election year, it seems that if my candidate does not get elected, the end of the world's going to come. I'm alive long enough that that hasn't happened yet. Can we just zoom out for a moment, realize that God is still in control? It's His will is going to happen. In the midst of maybe the injustice that we see in the world, in the midst of the day-to-day that we have or the hurts and the pains, they are very real that we have in our lives. Or even the good things. Can we just zoom out for a moment and say, God, how he is in control. Because if God has been in control and what we read in prophecy for the last thousands and thousands of years, it's a pretty good indication that he's going to be pretty much in control for the next thousands and thousands of years. He has never changed, though we have. But we can have comfort in knowing that he is in control of all. I read a story about the French war in the 1870s, about the Battle of Metz, and it follows. During the French War of 1870, a train was carrying military dispatches from Metz to the headquarters of the French army. The Germans had just captured Metz and were marching rapidly to cut off the French army. So the dispatchers, they needed to reach the post within an hour. The distance was 60 or 70 miles. The, the road was rough. The train consisted of a single coach and locomotive. The speed was like a whirlwind that the passengers were hurled around in the dashing, rushing train. Every moment threatened to pitch the first train over some embankment or bridge, rolling from side to slide, leaping at times in the air, rushing, roaring on past stations. Everything made way for the whirlwind of the desperate speed and energy. But a few people inside held their breath in dismay and often cried out with terror as they dashed along. But there was one person in the car who knew nothing of their fears. Happy as a bird amid all the excitement around her, she laughed aloud in childish glee and merriment as often as the train would give some wild lurch and hurl her over a seat. 
when they looked at her in wonder and where her mother asked her if she was not afraid, she looked up and answered, why? My father is at the engine. It's such a perfect picture of how love casts out fear. But when we know that as children, we have a heavenly father who is at the engine. We're reminded in 1 John 4, 18 to 19, perfect love casts out fear on the next slide. <laughs> There's no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love, and we love because he first loved us. I'm going to have the worship team. They're going to come on up as we transition our time. But just imagine for a moment if all of us here could live without fear. That in the midst of what we are seeing in our lives that we are going through, what if we were just to zoom out? Right to me being so zoomed in to the details that we're just so focused on. To see how the details of our lives, our hurts, our pains, our injustice, or even the good things, how they are in the grand scheme of God's context. Whether we're just being doom-scrolling on their phone and social media, and it's like, oh my goodness, what's going on in the world? Can we zoom out for a moment? Or we're going to this rabbit trail of just videos that would be on YouTube, and it's like, oh my goodness, what's going on in the world? No, zoom out in the context of what God is going on in the world. And so when others look at us in our lives, that yes, we are going through all the same things as this child was going through the same train as other people. The main difference between her and everybody else was she knew who was at the engine. She knew who was in control. And for us this morning, do we know who is in control? Despite everything that's going on, no matter where the election goes, no matter what bills get passed, no matter what's going on in your life or my life, that we know God is in control. And so when others look at us, how could we be have this joy in our lives? We, we tell them, my God, oh, he's got this. Let me pray for us. God, our Heavenly Father, you got this. In the midst of all the turmoil and just craziness that's happening in the world, help us remember that you are still in control. Even as we go through reading through our prophecies, we don't know what's going to happen, but you do. And we'll take comfort in that. You know what's going on. You have it all in your perfect plan. As you've had it planned out for thousands of years prior, as we, you've unveiled it slowly to us, let us live the lives to, to enjoy the, in comfort that you will continue to unveil what is next to us in our lives, Lord. And in Jesus' name we pray.